What's it like to be a king who can't rule because your father says so? Today's episode jumps back to 12th century England and explores the life of Henry the Young King. Hey everyone, Christine here with a new episode of Footnoting History. Before I start though, I wanted to let everyone know that our new playlist for Radio Public is out. It's called Human Footnotes, and aside from two of our own, it also has eight episodes from other great history podcasts about people whose lives deserve a lot more attention than they get. So, after you finish this episode, you can hop over to the Radio Public app to learn about even more overlooked epic lives. Now, Henry the Young King is a topic I've wanted to cover since footnoting history began. I'm really excited to talk about the man whose life might be my favorite historical footnote of all time, and it is my pleasure to give him his moment in the sun. Here we go. On February 28th, 1155, a new Prince of England was born. His name was Henry, and he would eventually be known to history as the Young King. Henry the Young King was born into a changing England. The country was crawling out of a period of chaos and anxiety. Only months before his birth, his father and mother, Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, were crowned King and Queen of England. This brought an end to almost two decades of civil war, caused by a fight for the crown between the young king's grandmother, Matilda, and her cousin, Stephen. Henry II had a big task ahead of him, returning a semblance of law and order to England while also keeping together his land holdings on the European continent. Those land holdings included large parts of what is now France, uh, places like Normandy, Anjou, and Aquitaine. Our Henry was actually his parents' second son, but before he was two years old, he went from being the so-called spare to the heir when his older brother William, also still a very young child, passed away. This means that it is safe to say our Henry never knew a time when he wasn't preparing to be the next King of England. In addition to his role as heir, Henry would also ultimately be older brother to six full siblings, three sisters, Matilda, Eleanor, and Joanna, and three brothers, Richard, Geoffrey, and John. So there's Henry, living his little life while his father stored out the country. What's the next big life step for a future king? Marriage, of course. The young king's marriage was, like many marriages in this period, a contract between two parties for largely political reasons. As I mentioned before, Henry II was in control of large parts of what is now France. What he wanted, very much, was to hold an area called the Vexin that was located on the border between his Normandy and the lands of the French king. In order to get this land, or at least the promise of it, he made an arrangement with the French king, Louis VII, that Henry the Young King would marry Louis's daughter, Marguerite. This way, the French king would see his daughter become Queen of England, and Henry II would see the Vexen become part of his holdings as a result of Marguerite's dowry. The marriage took place in November of 1160. If you do the math, Henry the Young King became heir to the throne before he turned two, and was a married man, or boy, the year he turned five. His wife, the little Princess Marguerite, was still a toddler. 
Much like I said he probably wouldn't remember a time before he became heir, he probably wouldn't remember a time before he married either. As he grew, Henry's life remained tied to the plans of his father, as was typically the case of children of important rulers. And by extension, it was entangled in the politics of the day. But it was a clash of personalities as well as politics that led to the third big moment in our Henry's life one that actually made him Henry the Young King. King Henry II was all too aware of what a problem succession could be. After all, his mother had to fight a war over it, and he didn't want something like that to happen again when he died. His solution was to employ a method that, while popular in other areas of Europe, had not been used in England since well before living memory. Henry II wanted to have his son crowned king, while he, the father, was very much still alive. This way, he could see his son be recognized not just as heir to the throne, but as the anointed associate king. Succession, then, would be as secure as it could ever be. The thing about the coronation of an English king, though, is that it's supposed to be conducted by the Archbishop of Canterbury. But the current Archbishop of Canterbury was Thomas Becket. Becket had once been Henry II's close friend and served as his chancellor. At one point, he even had the young king living in his household to be educated. Henry II trusted him so much that it had been his idea to make Becket Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest-ranking cleric in England. This, he hoped, would make the crown and church relations very harmonious. Of course, as with many well-made plans, this did not go as intended. Becket took the post of Archbishop of Canterbury, resigned as Chancellor, and soon after the two men were butting heads in a way that only two people who used to be very close could. Now, this conflict means that Henry II very much did not want his ex-friend crowning his son. A determined Henry II was not someone to be denied what he wanted, and he did, through a bit of royal finagling, arrange a coronation without Thomas Becket who was living in exile on the continent. By this point, our Henry the Young King was 15 years old. He had already attended at least one assembly at his father's side, and he knew what was going on. He's attributed as having been quite the attractive young man, tall and charming with broad shoulders, fair hair, and striking eyes, and he was about to be crowned King of England. The big day came on June 14, 1170. Our teenage prince was crowned King of England at Westminster by the Archbishop of York. Huzzah! England now had two kings, Henry II and his son, our Henry, the Young King, because they had both been anointed in a sacred religious ceremony and now held the same position. This coronation may have pleased Henry II and secured the succession, but it also made a lot of people upset. One of these people was Louis VII who took exception to the fact that his daughter had not been crowned with her husband. This grievance was eventually remedied in August of 1172, when Henry the Young King had a second coronation, this time performed by the Archbishop of Rouen, where his wife was crowned too. With that affront fixed, the Young King was all set to be an associate king until the death of his father and then take over the reins of government by himself, whenever that might be. But there was a problem. Until that time came, Henry the Young King pretty much had nothing to do. 
To make matters worse, he was supposed to be the highest ranking of his brothers. He was, after all, the only one who was a king. But he ended up being the one with the least power. Richard got invested with the lands that came into the family through their mother, while Geoffrey was set to become Duke of Brittany. But for Henry the Young King, the biggest what-the-heck moment came when his father decided that three castles were going to be given to his youngest brother John, who was still a child. This chafed at the young king, and combined with being continually denied any authority in the lands he had done homage for, it began a power struggle between father and son, king and associate king. Soon, Henry the young king fled from his father's court to the court of his father-in-law, Louis VII. The breach was made. Antagonistic relations between Henry II and our Henry were of benefit to the likes of Louis VII. He would enjoy few things as much as seeing Henry II's massive domains break apart. So, of course, Louis VII had no problem aiding and encouraging his son-in-law. He even went so far as to assert that the young king was England's rightful ruler. Henry the young king had some rather interesting allies in addition to the French king. His brothers, Richard and Geoffrey, the two who were already basically set with lands under their control, supported him. His mother, the formidable Eleanor of Aquitaine, also tried to join his side. Unfortunately for her, though, she was apprehended by her husband's men before she reached the young king. And as a result of this show of disloyalty to her husband, she spent roughly the next decade of her life in captivity. A plus for effort, Eleanor, but mm, not so good in the execution. Also helping Henry the Young King, though, were Philip, the Duke of Flanders, and William, King of Scots. Number of allies, however, does not guarantee a victory, as Henry the Young King learned. Despite some initial successes, his setbacks mounted. Philip of Flanders was so overcome with grief following his brother's death in one of the attacks that he was useless for a long while. Louis VII suffered from a military failure that stalled the advance of the young king's offense, and despite William of Scots doing his best to harass the Scots-English border, he eventually was captured by Henry II's supporters. By summer of 1174, all eyes were on the city of Rouen. Henry the young king laid siege to the city, hoping to capture it and really make his mark. However, his father showed up, and before you could say Henry the young king, the people of Rouen were relieved, and the young king was brought to heel and had to seek reconciliation with his father. Rebellion squashed. The young king lucked out because Henry II wasn't half as hard on him for this little stunt, if you can call a full-armed rebellion a little stunt, as he could have been. The result included the young king conceding the grants of land to John, while Henry II gave the young king a more generous allowance and promised two castles agreeing to similarly kind settlements for Richard and Geoffrey. Now that the young king had been soundly beaten, did things calm down? Yes, for a bit. Were they fixed? No, not at all. Following this, Henry spent almost all of the time at his father's side, kind of like being grounded. Not only did this help show his allegiance to the family cause, but his proximity to his father also likely meant that he got some good lessons on how to govern, even if he still had no land to control on his own. The monotony of following his father around did eventually end, 
By 1176, he had grown restless and been denied a request to go on pilgrimage to Spain. Instead, Henry II found another way to keep him being useful and active. He sent the young king down to Richard's lands on the continent to help him put down a rebellion there by his barons. This removal from his father's side gave the young king space to strike out on his own. After helping Richard, he made connections, reuniting with some of his old associates and several men who had no love for his father, and he expanded his household. This branching out continued for several years, during which two important things happened. First, in 1177, the young king suffered a personal loss. His wife Marguerite gave birth to their first child. Unfortunately, the baby passed away very shortly after its birth. The couple would have no more children together. The second development was far more positive. He became a star on the tournament scene. These tournaments were quite different than what you might see in, let's say, medieval times or a renaissance fair. Instead of orderly jousting, these were mini war zones. Giant melees erupted over miles of terrain where people were hurt and captured. Ransoms were paid for release, spoils were collected, and both fortunes and reputations were gained and lost. By 1179, the young king was a star. He was loved as much for his field prowess, which he developed alongside his friend and mentor William Marshall, one of the Middle Ages' most famous knights, as for his chivalry, largesse, and generosity, a lifestyle which, it should be noted, regularly left him with a lot of debt. This fame soon came very much in handy for politics. Louis VII of France, remember the young king's father-in-law, suffered an illness that left him basically unable to rule. As such, the decision was made to crown his son, Philip Augustus, just like Henry the Young King had been crowned while his father still lived. Only, in this case, Philip's father was unable to partake in much of the governing. So Henry the Young King was sent to represent the English crown, and of course, participate in the celebratory tournament, and develop some political influence over Philip Augustus. The thing is that traveling with his father, fighting in tournaments, and acting as an agent of the crown in the French court did little to abate the young king's frustration long term. Henry was a grown man with a wife and a household to support and no power despite the crown that he wore. So his unhappiness was always there, bubbling under the surface. Until 1182. In that year, he again demanded his father give him Normandy or some other comparable area that he could rule on his own. Offers of more money and knights from Henry II, but still no Normandy, temporarily prevented a rupture. Soon after this, Henry II sought to cement peace in his family. One way he did this was by telling Richard and Geoffrey to do homage to their brother, therefore recognizing him as their overlord. Geoffrey agreed, but Richard was a very different case. He was already at odds with the young king over control of a castle and Henry's support of his discontented barons, so he balked. This did not ease tensions, and ultimately Richard grumbled his way back to his lands. Soon, however, the young king was down there too. And as you can guess, this did not go well. The situation quickly devolved into the second armed family squabble in a decade. The young king took up in Limoges and was supported by his brother Geoffrey, using the city as a rallying point for everyone who didn't like Richard, and maybe perhaps they would prefer him, Henry the young king, as their leader instead. 
Henry II attempted to intervene, but ended up having arrows fired at him, which, as you can imagine, would not make somebody like Henry II very happy. Even though the young king called the incident a misunderstanding, it set the tone for the entire ordeal, and terms appeared less and less likely to be reached. Whatever confidence Henry II had developed in his co-ruler during the peace years was chipping away to nothing, while Richard and his father were outside of the city, the young king was in it and his money was drying up. He had to fund this military endeavor, and things became rather desperate as the coffers emptied. So he took extreme measures. He began looting. He even looted a shrine that he had once given a gift to. Then he snuck out of the city and crisscrossed the region, seeking money and supplies. It was during this, in the spring of 1183, that the young king fell ill, which is really, really bad timing. Soon he was bedridden in a small town with dwindling hopes for recovery. Aware that his health was rapidly failing, the young king begged his father to come see him so that they could reconcile. Already burnt too many times, Henry II decided not to go. Instead, he sent an envoy with one of his rings as a token. The young king never saw his father again because he passed away on June 11, 1183, of dysentery at the age of 28. Perhaps the most intense reaction to the young king's death came from the city of Le Mans. It was the young king's wish to be buried in Rouen Cathedral, so his body was conveyed north towards Rouen. That would make sense. On the way, though, the cortege was stopped at Le Mans, where the young king's body was taken and interred in their cathedral. That was not the plan at all. His body was basically stolen. It took the intervention of Henry II to get his son's body out of Le Mans Cathedral and reinterred at Rouen. It was with this last bizarre, dramatic flourish that the young king left the world. By dying before his father, he was not only denied ever ruling on his own and truly being Henry III, but he also ended up relegated to often just a reference in the biographies of his father and brothers something that you can well imagine would not have pleased him. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.